Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. So good morning, everyone. Welcome here to Strength to Strength. It's a real blessing to be here with each one of you at this early hour. And uh, we we uh, quite often get asked the question, why in the world do you guys meet at 6 a.m.? <laughs> Um, I think we just in the last week or two, we had to answer that question with somebody. Um, but it's, it's a great time to pull together and be challenged uh, in our spiritual walk. Of course, there's the, the history of COVID that hit, you know, about exactly two years ago, um, here in the States and everybody kind of went to social distancing for a time and kind of out of that came, um, this, this vision together. And, um, so it's been kind of a, a tradition since, since then. And, Patrick Matthew, welcome here. I see that you just hopped on. So he was the, the brother who really, um, got this, got this rolling and it was, it was a daily call back then. And then it went to a, a weekly call after a while. And now we're here at a, at a bi-weekly call. So yeah, so welcome here. It's good, good to be with you. The goal of strength to strength really is to advance Jesus kingdom. And I know of no other better way to talk about advancing his kingdom than a topic like this morning. Um, patriotic ambassadors, so part of the theme. Um, Zach's talk here is number seven um, of this theme of patriotic ambassadors. And the title is Reclaiming Responsibility. And uh, I have a real suspicion that um, his talk is, is uh, going to take us into the word of God and is going to challenge us from the perspective of Jesus and the apostles and how, how they went about changing the world. So I'm really anticipating this talk. But before we get started, um, why don't we just bow our heads for prayer? Let's pray. <clears throat> kind Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name this morning, in the name that is above all names. And Father, we come to you uh, knowing that we are your sons and daughters. We come to you knowing that we can come boldly to your throne and pray to you and cast our cares on you because you care about us. And because we know that you have walked this way before. And Father, this morning, our, our, our desire is that through this talk, that you would be glorified, that your kingdom would be um, quantified, that we could, we could imagine it more than before, that your kingdom could be advanced a little bit farther in each one of our hearts. And so, Father, um, we, we, we pray together, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth here as it is in heaven. I pray that you bless Zach um, as he shares this talk. Father, uh, be near to also Brother David. Uh, thank you for these brothers. Thank you for their their vision. Thank you for their work. Uh, and Father, I ask that you would bless the work of their heads. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So, uh, Zach, yeah, welcome, welcome here. Um, I've gotten to rub shoulders with Zach Um on a couple of different fronts last several years, um, probably starting at Kingdom Fellowship weekend. And, mm-hmm. uh, I, 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 I just see in Zach, uh, obviously from his example of following truth, being willing to, to leave the Air Force and, um, get involved in, in, in being a, a, a soldier in the kingdom of God has been a, a real inspiration to me. Um, but also just uh, somebody who really loves people and, uh, really wants to see, uh, Souls uh, see people um, challenged with the truth of God's kingdom and brought into it, and, and and then also not only not only just 
um, seeing it and understanding it, but participating it, right? Uh, advancing God's kingdom. So um, that's always challenged me a lot. Um, so Zach, um, all yours. All yours. All right. So thanks again for having me today. I'm uh, really honored to be here. And last time I was on, I was able to share about my testimony and that the the name of that talk was No Blood But Our Own, sort of this sacrificial movement into peacemaking. And the topic of my talk today is going to be, it's called Reclaiming Responsibility. And it's going to be themed after a book by a man named James Hunter. And the, the title of his book is To Change the World, The Irony tragedy and possibility of Christianity in the late modern world. So a lot of the the themes that we'll be covering aren't necessarily um, my own, but I'm, I'm excited to, to sort of share the, these thoughts with you and, and get into this question. A lot of questions that we need, kind of have to think about for, for our own lives here. All right, so just a, a brief roadmap for what we'll be covering. So I'm going to, I know that in the, the patriotic ambassadors, um, talks, we, there, there's a lot of talk about, about politics and why it is that Christians should sort of withdraw their influence from politics. And so I'm going to share a little bit about this theme of voting as an abdication of responsibility. And then we'll move into a, a stir that got caused in 2010. Basically, there's a, this book came out by James Hunter and he called, he called two men out. He called out a man named Chuck Colson. Some of you might be familiar with Chuck Colson and he called out another man named Andy Crouch in their ways of prescribing cultural change to the world. And it actually caused a little bit of a stir. And there, there were, there were sort of back and forth interviews between those three men. And then I'm actually going to introduce David Anderson on the call, who actually was just able to interview James Hunter on his book. I think he spent an hour and 40 minutes with him and got to sort of really tease out some of the implications. And then, so I'll let David, uh, share there. And then we'll, we'll just close with some some brief implications and recommendations for the church here. And so I, I wanted to open the talk by just sharing this, uh, this concept here that or, or being transparent that four years ago, I organized a, a debate when I was in graduate school called should Christians vote. And I was on the voting side. I was in the air force and I was trying to debate the followers of the way out here in, in Boston. And so there's a sort of a thumbnail here of Matthew Milioni with being moderated by Finney. And there was a guy named Josh who came and really tried to, to hash this out. Should Christians vote? And I was in the audience and one of my last questions on, on that, uh, that talk was, Hey, um, if Christians don't vote, it seems like we're creating this huge power vacuum where somebody will just step in and stick in their, their bayonet, so to speak, right where we pull out and our influence in the world. 
seems to be diminishing. And it's, it's been a, a continuous question of mine since leaving that frame of thought and leaving the Air Force. And if you haven't listened to that debate and you're, you're looking for some good information, I'd, I'd recommend that. And then the following Sunday is really when I, I started to seriously reconsider this. Um, there's a, there's a sermon titled voting and abdication of responsibility. So there's the, the debate talk that Matthew gave, you know, in front of a, an academic audience. And then I showed up to Followers of the Way on Sunday and heard sort of the theological side of why voting was an abdication of responsibility. And that sermon, it's really interesting. If you if you are looking for a good sermon on I'm not voting, I think it's one of the, the sermons that has the most punch to it. And the main driving theme to it is that by voting, you're actually abdicating your responsibility as a Christian. A lot of people, you can make a lot of analogies. Let's say that you care about life and pro-life topics. And a lot of people act or they act in the political realm when they should be acting in the public realm. Like if you care about life rather than vote, you should be um, creating centers that help women who are considering abortion and these kinds of things. So that's sort of the backdrop to, to this, this talk here. And when, when we think about how to change the world, I'll just try to throw out an, an interesting question to all of you here. And maybe you can ponder it here. 85% of Americans today profess some kind of Christianity. When you, when you pull them, that's 85%. It's a shocking statistic. But when you examine American culture, you'll see that the, the influence that Americans Christians have had over our country is surprisingly negligible. So you, when you, when you pull the people, they'll say they're professing Christians. When you examine the culture, there's a huge disconnect between those two. And so this is where it's, it's really interesting. And we're going to get into some paradigms about why that has happened and why <laughs> there's a disproportionate influence moving against, uh, broadly speaking, Christianity today. And this is where I just want to introduce Hunter's thesis and his paradigms to you. And hopefully we can work our way through this together and sort of examine it. So here's, here's the, the thesis that Hunter proposes in his book here. So because change implies power, all Christians eventually embrace strategies of political engagement. Hunter offers a trenchant critique of the political theologies of the Christian right and left and the neo-Anabaptist. Taking on many respected leaders from Charles Colson to Stanley Hauerwas, Hunter argues that all too often these political theologies worsen the very problems they are designed to solve. What is really needed is a different paradigm of Christian engagement with the world one that Hunter calls faithful presence, an ideal of Christian practice that is not only individual, but institutional, a model that plays out in our work and all spheres of life. So when you look at culture and what shapes culture, it's kind of a 
a big meta question, but it's, it's really interesting to, to examine here. What makes up a culture and how are we supposed to, to interact with it? And broadly speaking, there's a lot of theories about, Hey, how, how do we, how do we look at culture? How do we examine it? How do we change it? And there's culture as ideas. So there's a lot of thought that a, an idea will shape a culture. There's culture as artifact. That's sort of the, the, the tangible physical goods that are produced. Um, a lot of people have been looking at media as a representation of what makes culture here interesting. And then there's this third argument that Hunter sort of gets at. And he, he strongly, strongly, strongly says that culture is not ideas. Culture is not artifacts, but culture is infrastructure. So it's a, it's a, it's a hard thing to wrap your mind around, but he's basically saying that in, infrastructure in, includes something called institutions and the institutions or infrastructure behind a society are really the monsters that, that shape the culture in good ways and in bad ways. And when he, you ask him, Hey, what's wrong with this culture as ideas or culture as artifacts? He's not saying that that doesn't play into it, but he says that culture is constituted by very powerful institutions that operate on their own dynamics, independent of individual will. Ideas do move history and objects do have their place, but only under certain social conditions. When ideas do move history, it's not because those ideas are inherently truthful or obviously correct, but rather because of the way they're embedded within institutions and structures of power. Both perspectives are looking at the tip of the iceberg, overlooking the mass of ice beneath the water. So this is a really interesting thing to, to think about here. So I'll, I'll do a little bit of a thought experiment. When you think about the civil rights movement in the United States, is there a particular name of a man that comes to the top of your man, your mind who was influential in the civil rights movement? Maybe I can get some, some head nods if you're, if you're thinking of a name there. I see some people shaking their heads. The name that comes to my mind and many people's mind is Martin Luther King Jr. He was the, that sort of this pivotal genius in that movement. And let's do another thought experiment. When you think about the abolition of slavery in England, is there a name that comes to your mind? I'm, I'm seeing some head nods here. I, I think the, the name that comes to my mind is William Wilberforce. A lot of us know about that man. And there's a sort of a mistake in our th human thinking that we think that Martin Luther King Jr. and Wil William Wilberforce were acting as individuals. And it's most certainly not the case that they were genius of men, but behind the change that they brought to their societies was this massive infrastructure behind them that they were a part of, that they had gone to school. You, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. was a really well entrenched in, in the churches in the South William Wilberforce. He went to school with some of the, the, the head politicians and the change he was trying to make there. So trying to shape this idea that culture is infrastructure is really important when we think about, when we think about how, who we're going to align ourselves with and how we're going to go about, um, sort of 
putting <laughs> living for Christ and how are we going to, how are we going to give our time to our vocations and different things like that. So as we move on here, if, if you're looking for a book to sort of dissect the different ways that Christians have interacted with the world and how to change it, I'm, I'm kind of shocked at this book because in the kingdom worlds, we, we have a lot of people who are calling people away from voting and saying, hey, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And I think that's an amazing thing to be calling out of people out of. But there's there's actually some arguments happening in the evangelical world, too, that are saying, hey, the Christian witness should not be merely a political witness. So Hunter basically, he splits the the Christian response into three broad categories or, or paradigms, and then he calls his readers to a fourth one. So he, he introduces the Christian left. Many of us can be are familiar with the Christian left, and he says that when Christian the Christian left relate to culture, they're attempting to be relevant to the culture, and you, you see that a, a lot of, a lot in in how people interact with with some of these more pro- progressive ideas. And the Christian left oftentimes sort of coddled a lot of those in order to be relevant to it. Then there's the Christian right, which is trying to be, he describes it as defensive against the culture around. So a lot of times you'll be seeing people making certain, um, I'll, I'll say postures of power to defend a, a, a set of cultural standards. And then Hunter, he also finds the, the neo-Anabaptists and it, it sort of pains me when you look at, when you, when you talk to an academic about the research, oftentimes when people use the word Anabaptist, the, the, the authors that they'll be representing in the Anabaptist world or the neo-Anabaptist world include people like Stanley Hauerwas and John Howard Yoder. Those, those might be familiar names to, to some people in the academics and, a lot of people are categorizing the Anabaptists by these sets of writings. So it's really important when you're, when you're interacting with this stuff to, to realize that many people haven't read into, um, the con- sort of the conservative Anabaptist world. And there's, could be a lot of reasons for that. And then lastly, Hunter basically says, this is wrong. All, all of these groups of Christians are not going about world change in the right way. What is really needed is a group of people who will develop a faithful presence within culture. And that's an important distinction here to make. And with that, I'd love to bring on David Anderson onto the phone call and, and introduce him. David, I had the, the pleasure. David was actually all the first followers of the way wedding that I ever went to. He married Matthew Milioni's oldest daughter there that I spoke about above and he actually had a chance to interview hunter so i'd love to hear more from him on sort of developing this faithful presence within yeah thanks for the introduction zach i'm actually a student of zach's at Sattler right now so this is how i got introduced to the book but yeah i was able to talk to james hunter for about an hour and 40 minutes and it was a really neat experience he's a pretty amazing man and he's actually the man who coined the term culture war. So if you've ever heard that term in the United States, like 
the culture wars with gay rights or anti-abortion or all of these ideas. He's the guy that t- coined it back in the eighties. So, um, but yeah, on our way to developing a faithful presence, um, you can go ahead and switch the slides Zach. So, um, yeah, before we get to what faithful presence is, I really want to dive into what it is that James Hunter's trying to do. And in short, like Zach had mentioned a bit, he's trying to separate the political from the public. And so it says that recently there's this trend to politicize pretty much everything. And it, politici- politicization means more than just legislation and election. It's this idea of if we want to affect any sort of change in the world, if we want to interact with our broader communities in the public sphere, for most people, it's in some political way that could be litigation, that could be in the courts, that could be legislation, election. It's kind of the knee jerk reaction of most people in a way that the public just becomes the political. And that's all there is. But Hunter says that if Christians take that route, we're actually missing a lot of exciting opportunities. So the market is one example. Business owners involve themselves in the market, potentially the arts, education. There's all these other realms of public life that we all share with believers and non-believers that are available to us that are outside of the political realm. And Hunter is pushing Christians to exploring these um, these places in society. I'm going to read a quote from him real quick. He says, to decouple the public from the political will open up other options for engaging the world and addressing its problems in ways that do not require the state, the law, or a political party. There are innumerable opportunities, not only in art, education, care for the environment, provision of relief for the widow, orphaned, sick, but in the market itself to engage the world for the better. Efforts in these directions could entail significant outlays of time, money, and moral commitment, but the consequences for the common good would be extraordinary. And so in a nutshell, he's pushing Christians to be more creative and in some sense, to retake responsibility in shaping the public narrative and being able to be a public witness. And so that's the first step towards a faithful presence is understanding that the public sphere of our life in the world with believers and non-believers is much broader and more exciting than just the political realm. Um, you can go ahead and switch that slide. So, If we're going to use this public sphere, um, maybe education, maybe the arts, maybe business for change of the world, it's worth asking, how do we actually change the world? And Zach had touched on this point already with some of those examples like the civil rights movement. But it's one of the pivotal points in this book is um, Hunter's idea of what it means to change the world. So I want to emphasize it here. And he presents two views And one is generally called the dominant view. That's what he calls it. And because it's held by most people, especially as kind of a knee jerk reaction. If you go ask someone on the street or if you think about it, you ask them the question, how how should we go about changing the world? How can we actually do this? The answer is that we have to change the hearts and minds of individuals. And it really rests on this power of an individual 
to go out and change the world. That if we change enough people, we'll change the world. Or as Hunter says, in your own sphere of influence, you too can be an Edwards or a Dwight, a Booth, a Lincoln, a Dorothy Day, Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa. If you have the courage and hold to the right values, and if you think Christianly with an adequate Christian worldview, you too can change the world. This idea of the power of the individual. And Hunter actually says this account is almost wholly mistaken. And so it's kind of shocking to think about. That might not be the way to change the world. And so he advocates an alternative view, one of institutional networked change. And the word institution, I think, for the past probably two or three decades has been kind of a bad word, um, something that's dehumanizing or cold, some system. But Hunter's saying that institutions oftentimes are the basis of change for worse, for all these bad ways that institutions can change the world, but also for better. Um, and we'll touch on a few examples at the next slide, but he has one more idea in world change, and it's this notion of the center and the periphery. So if you think of a circle, the closer you get to the center, the smaller it gets, and eventually you get to the center, and the further out to the periphery you get, the broader it gets. And he's saying that Social change happens in the center of society, generally. So one example he gives is the the newspaper USA Today sells a lot of copies, way more than the New York Times, but it influences the world a lot less than the New York Times um, because it's closer to the center. Or evangelicals and Anabaptists oftentimes put out a lot of material into the world. And there's a lot of books and magazines and articles and a lot of material, but it's more on the periphery of most of society. And so it's not potentially changing the world as we would like to see it. And in contrast, he points to something like the gay rights lobby, that there's a very small percentage of Americans that would identify as gay and even smaller percentage that are actively involved in lobbying for societal change, this fraction of a population, and they've managed to change the entire public discourse within about two or three decades. What was once unthinkable or at least just unacceptable 30 or 40 years ago is now the norm. And if you actually disagree with it or push back against it, like you're the odd one out. And that's happened just in a matter of 20 or so years with a very, very small group of people because they found their way into networks of people that are involved in world change. They're in systems of education and media and closer and closer, <clears throat> excuse me, to the center. And so he gives a few examples of this. Zach had just given some, and I can go through these hopefully pretty quickly, but one would be anti-Nicene Christianity. So the early church, a lot of people would depict as like a grassroots movement and it's from the bottom up. And as with most things, like there's a lot of truth to that. Um, but that's not the whole story. By the first um, two centuries, the early Christians were establishing institutions like schools. There was a school in Alexandria. There's a school in Antioch that people could come and learn at and be trained at and then go out into the world. And we have writers like Origen and Clement of Alexandria, Athenagoras. So all of these great early Christian writers going through these early institutions that the church set up and affecting change. 
Also, the fact that they were networked with all of each other, they're writing letters back and forth and creating these dense networks of individuals to where it's not just one great figure going out and changing the world by himself. We see the same with um, the rise of especially Swiss Anabaptism, but the Anabaptist movement in general, that a lot of these early Anabaptists like Greville and Blaurock were actually closer to the center of their society. They're studying under Swingley. They're in one of the most important cities in Europe, right in the thick of public change and public discourse. And they're having public debates on the nature of baptism, public debates on the nature of the church. And they're right in the thick of it. And these men are educated men that are connected with institutions and connected with each other. And so it's not just one great person with a great idea that goes out and changes the world. Another example real quick is the Great Awakening, that exciting time of religious um, awakening in the United States in the 1700s, where tens of thousands of people are converting to Christianity. And a lot of people trace it to figures like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. And they were um, incredible figures in a lot of ways, but they were connected to a whole host of incredible figures that the history books don't talk about. And they were connected to institutions like Yale, like Oxford. And the solution isn't that we should all go to Yale and Oxford, but it's to see that these men are upheld by systems behind them that are working towards, that are giving them the tools and equipment and social capital needed to go out and change the world. And one last point he gives is that oftentimes lasting cultural change can't happen in a lifetime. This is actually one of the bigger portions of his whole book um, is this historical analysis. He goes from the early church to the modern world and hits pretty much every chapter on the way, but he notices that lasting cultural change doesn't usually happen in a lifetime. It's people and systems that work together over the course of definitely decades, but oftentimes centuries that changes the world for good and for worse over time. Um, one last point before I get to some of these implications, sorry, Zach, is he pushes back because this can make it sound almost like an elitism. Like if you're not, if you're a leader at an institution, you'll change the world. And if you're not, you won't. And he really pushes back against that and says, that's not a good way of understanding this. Um, one way he does that is by saying it's not about the individuals. It's about the people that make up a group that make up an organization. The school in Alexandria and the early church produced a lot of great teachers, but there were other people behind the scenes. And he also argues that in some sense, some of that dominant view on world change, like there's a grain of truth to it. Like we are all leaders and we are all followers. We all have our own nets of influence and our own um, our own relationships with our churches and our businesses, our communities, our families. And in some sense, every single person is a follower, even those that you think of as leaders. And every single follower is a leader. And so we all have the burden of responsibility to be leveraging our social networks, be leveraging our talents and our skills for changing the world for Christ and his kingdom. And so just a cursory definition of what faithful presence could look like. And it's Christians faithfully and publicly, 
that's an important part, faithfully and publicly being present in the world and affecting positive change through their personal lives, through their networks, and through institutions that equip them. I'll read that one more time. Um, Christians faithfully and publicly being present in the world and affecting positive change through personal lives, but also through networks and institutions. And one last point of where is he all getting this? That's Is this just sociology? Is that what we're doing now? And he actually roots a lot of this in Genesis 1. He spends a lot of time at the beginning of the book talking about what it means for God to give humanity dominion and authority over the world. What does it mean to have this mandate by God to tend for the world and to help co-create with God? And for Hunter, he's advocating that human culture isn't necessarily a bad thing, that human institutions aren't necessarily a bad thing, that that's actually part of the mandate that God gives us. In Revelation 21, it says the kings of the earth will bring their glory into the new creation, that there's something about what humans do here and now that is lasting and that should be lasting eternally for good, but oftentimes it's for bad. And so he's rooting all of this in what it means to be human and what it means to be given a mandate by God to tend to the world and to help create and to help nurture. Um, and then I, I keep saying one final point. This is the final, final point. Um, just to note for this book, it's a very um, thought provoking book. Um, and we'll get to the implications just in a moment, but we definitely wouldn't agree on everything. We wouldn't just recommend this book wholesale and say, Oh, go buy a copy. And now you've figured out how to change the world for Jesus. Like there's a lot of good points, but there are points of disagreement for Hunter. He's saying being faithfully present should be all through society kind of like the salt and the leaven, but that includes having great Christians in journalism, which maybe that's cool in art, you know, maybe law perhaps, but also government, potentially the military. And so he's saying Christians, there is a place for Christians to be in government. There is a place for Christians to be faithfully present in the military. And so there's places we would push back for push back on, but the place that we're excited about what he's doing is that he's calling for forms of change that are not political. And he's calling for Christians of all stripes to be looking at these public forms of change. And he's calling for Christians to be in institutions and that are faithfully present in the world. So with that caveat, we can move on to some of the implications. I'll give two implications and then brother Zach will close up with two implications. So, the first implication, what can we take away from all of this talk about world change, all this talk about um, public and political? The first takeaway is that every Christian should be leveraging their talents and their social capital. So every Christian should be leveraging their talents and their social capital. We're all given gifts from God. We're all given inclinations and talents, and we all have some sort of social capital in the communities that we find ourselves in even by virtue of being a U.S. citizen. Like that's that's a valuable thing in today's world. Paul uses his Roman citizenship. He'll say that he's a citizen of heaven for sure, but to pr promote the kingdom of God, he'll use his Roman citizenship when he needs to. 
Um, he's using his education that he gets from Gamaliel. I don't have the, the reference, but Acts, it talks about him being educated under one of the top rabbis of the day, and he uses that. The same time, he counts all these things law as loss. Like, these aren't the important things in the scheme of the kingdom of God. These aren't the defining factors. God is after hearts. God is after people. But these are the tools that God uses. Um and so we should be faithful with those. We don't want to bury these talents. We don't want to bury the social capital in the ground and ignore it. We want to be faithful with what we have. And so that's kind of the low hanging fruit for what we can take away from this is to leverage the talents and the social capital we have. I think the one of the more important takeaways is this idea of creating networks. And so Christianity and especially, yeah, I'll say Christianity isn't a lone wolf religion. Um, I'm assuming that a lot of us would agree with that, but it's really worth emphasizing because you can intellectually affirm that and then you can look at your life and realize, wait, I'm not actually connected with anybody. I'm kind of doing my own thing. And that's not the church. That's not um, how to make change in the world. That's not any of this. And so the alternative is, I mean, one, the local church, that's potentially the starting point and the end point, um, being a part of a local church. But even more than that, it's creating groups of people networked together that are pursuing a common goal. Creating groups of people that are networked together, pursuing a common goal. And this can look like something as small as like a small group at your church where certain brothers are excited about this thing and you're getting together for accountability for change. But I think we should look bigger than that. We should have, we should be more excited. Um, this could look like, I mean, my passion is academics and education. So I keep bringing up um, that example a lot, an academic institution, this is completely hypothetical, but the Institute for the Study of Kingdom Theology, where you get different thinkers and different scholars having conversations about um, the beliefs that we hold and what are the liabilities and what are the potentials and just creating a space to have that conversation. And all of a sudden you're networking people with a common goal and the sum is greater than the parts. But it's not limited to academics. You have business networks. You have the Moravian mission machine throughout history. Um, and they're using business as mission and creating these dense networks of people all around the world, planting churches and evangelizing through business. And so using our businesses and connecting our businesses, um, this could go to potentially church missions and different charity networks, or even something like strength to strength. Like we're a group of people at, <laughs> I see some excitement. We're a group of people at 640 in the morning sharing a space to have conversations and to build each other up and to edify each other. And that's the starting point. Um, and why it's because it creates the space for conversations to happen that might not otherwise happen. It creates networks of individuals that might not otherwise be connected. I can draw from other people's skills and other people can draw from my skills. And all of a sudden you're creating at least networks, if not institutions that can affect change in the world for good. People can come through and learn amazing things, be impacted and go out and change the world more than they could have just by themselves. And so I think the second big takeaway from this is to be actively creating networks and working with each other and looking for people with common goals and visions 
to have conversations and to go out and actively build the church, actively build the kingdom. So those are two implications and I'll pass it back off to brother Zach to, to finish out this before we get to the Q and a. Thanks, David. So the, the, I, I, I'm laughing to myself because I, I was going to give this caveat that this this book was really influential in the founding of Sattler College, where I work and where I met David. And so, obviously, I'm not I'm I'm not trying to give a plug for specifically Sattler here, but you can definitely see how some of the things that we shared can actually create movement. <laughs> and can create net, networks of people who would have met each other doing things that wouldn't have ever happened without the institution to, to bring them together. And so the original question in the talk, or the way that I was trying to frame it, was this, this question that, so now that we were, we're sort of operating from this baseline of, hey, we, we don't, we don't vote as Christians. <laughs> we, actually stay out of the coercive uh, forms of how to change things. The, the question now is, so how do we as Christians avoid this power vacuum that sort of could could get created if we have a lot of teachings and mindsets about not engaging the world through through politics? How will we be ambassadors of the kingdom moving forward in some of the the areas that we care about most. I I kind of want to present that question to each of each of the people listening. What is a burden that you have for the world that you want to see influenced by your beliefs? I I really really hope that when I ask that each of you can can kind of think about something. Do you have a burden and, uh, you know, recently, I, all of us are looking, reading the news right now. I think many, I hope many of us are burdened right now that there's, there's a, an ongoing conflict and, you know, Russia and Ukraine. And it seems like the only option right now of change is through a political means. You know, my wife and I have been following a lot of the, the missionary families over in Ukraine and a lot of them. Some of them are leaving, some of them are staying, and it's 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 really interesting to see how would a kingdom Christian r- right now go and have a, a stake in what's going on in sort of this this bigger realm. And I hope the answer, my my thesis is that we can do this, that we do belong in this in this public sphere that that David talked about. And so the, the implications that I have for you and I'm not going to solve the, I'm not going to solve this Ukrainian crisis on the talk today, but increase your chances of transformation through institutions. When I, I actually assigned this book to a lot of my students in college and one of the takeaways that I just beg them <laughs> to take away is David mentioned it here is don't be alone. Don't be somebody who cares about something so much but is not networked and trying to act in 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 isolation away from other people it's it's a really easy thing to gravitate towards just being alone but you don't have to be and 
in order to increase, you can increase your chance of transformation through institutions. And I, I want to say that, that there, there's a, there's a hard place in what I see the world is in right now, because there's lots of institutions doing really interesting things, but there aren't that many institutions that I would say a whole, give a whole hearty amen to, you know, that we, there's a lot of good, but there's a lot of, a lot of hard stuff too. I'll give a, a brief example. So my family were deeply connected to an organization or an institution called Samaritan's Purse. Some of you might be familiar with them. My, my dad was a country director, both in Haiti and in, in Ecuador, where I w- was uh, born and raised. And my dad's chance, it was interesting. My dad actually owned a construction company and he really, he had a construction company, he really wanted to um, get involved with this project that was rebuilding some people's homes after a shockingly a volcano had had sort of destroyed this these this area of Ecuador. But my dad's construction company couldn't necessarily affect the change. And so he pursued a career with Sarah's Purse. All of a sudden, through that network, his chances of transformation had changed. All of a sudden, he had access to all this social capital. And so that's that's one example of how, you know, an institution can can give you sort of a platform and increase your chances of helping people physically. But then here's the, here's the caveat. (laughs) I, you have to filter your relationships with institutions through a potential to reconcile people to God. And the, the reason I say this is that this is where I think Hunter and I and would disagree most. I, I think I would say this is that Hunter would be, you know, probably okay with if, if I had, you know, a son and let's say he's really talented, he could probably get a job anywhere. I'm just imagining something. Should my son go work at the world's top corporation? Let's say one of the top three tech companies, Google, Amazon, or Facebook, or should he try to choose a network that has a, a, a potential to reconcile people to God. And that's where I think this filter needs to be implemented by church planting. <laughs> and th- I, I, I say this a lot, but when I was 20 years old, I also joined Samaritan's Purse, an institution to go and try to help the, the impoverished nation of Mozambique. And this is where want to tie in global poverty to the the conversation a little bit here. And so Samaritan's Purse sent me to the the north of Mozambique alone, no other English speakers, no church connection. And my potential to reconcile people to God, I I know I, I was hoping for it, but it was absent because I was alone with an institution, but there was no avenue for me to, to meet people and to d- disciple them and then to bring them into the church. And so what I'm not calling what I, I hope you don't hear a takeaway is you shouldn't be joining institutions that will send you off alone without a network to a church. It's, it's a really important point here. And, and this, this filter might look different for different people, but it's, 
it's it's ironic because there's a story about a man who took the opposite approach. He was uh, I can't remember what his career was. He decided to join a bigwig institution and he was just going to be really faithful where he worked every day. He was going to be kind to people every day. He was going to love on them. And with the hope that he was going to transform people through his his general presence. And one day somebody came up to him and knocked on his door in his office and they said, hey, can can I ask you something? And the man was all of a sudden really excited. He said, oh, I think this is finally my chance. And he comes and he closes the door, sits down. And he said, I've noticed there's something different about you. And the guy was like, oh, this is it. This is it. And he says, are you a vegetarian? <laughs> and there, there's a, a that that's sort of a punchy story, but it's the danger of us not proclaiming, not being shy about the kingdom and not owning that our true belief is in reconciling people to God rather than just being a generally faithful person. And that's where I kind of want to leave it with opening it to some questions here. But in the realm of global poverty, there's there's a lot that we can be doing for people's physical needs. Um, there's a lot of organizations. If you're interested in sort of looking at, Hey, what are the, the best practices in bringing people out of financial poverty or, or mental poverty? And you, you could join a plethora of organizations, but you miss this, this opportunity to reconcile the people to God. I believe you're missing out on the key component of what true poverty is. And that's a broken relationship with God. And so all of us, as we sort of going about filling the vacuums in different areas, I hope we can do that. And my uh, just my prayer with this talk and thinking about it is that our influence as a group of people who follow Christ and to the, are obsessed about his commandments can become disproportionate to our numbers. We're a tiny, 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 tiny group of people in comparison to the global population. But the the hope, and I hope you, you hear this from Hunter, is that it is possible that there are tiny groups of people who have effective large-scale change. And I hope that you sort of get a, a view of, of the future that is hopeful and um full of people being reconciled to God through, through Christ here. And I'd love to open it back up and sort of just give it back to you, Bryant, or open it up to the audience for, for some dialogue if we have time for that. We absolutely have time, Zach and David. Wow. Um, where do we start? <laughs> On, on, on this, um, topic. Um, you've definitely sent us deep here. Um, thank you for that. Um, yeah, I was, I was catch, capturing some screenshots of your talks or your slides. Um, definitely want to go back to them. And this is the question that, that I get faced all the time, um, with students here at Penn State, with people who are exploring. How do you change the world? Whether it's my Iranian friend who left Islam because he's just totally turned off at Islam and what's happening in Iran. Um, whether it's my Catholic 
student friend who is a radical follower of Jesus, um, who really is, is grappling with, well, what is what is the way of the kingdom? And it's been so exciting to to engage on these and to have him go listen to the Just War debate and 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 talk about these things. But it's it's a question that's front and center um, in our world. Um, and, um, and unfortunately, you know, I, I've said this, um, you know, at one of our one of our best kept secrets um, as as Anabaptists, as kingdom Christians, is that we totally eschew the political realm, that we don't even vote. We don't even go there. But uh, we have really struggled with building a foundation on alternatively. How do we change the world? And and probably even worse than that, our, our imagination has become totally impoverished. And we just kind of result, resort to the old paths, you know, the last hundred years of whatever that might be. Um, and and we need a new vision. Um, as, as, uh, so as someone has said here, a, a comment that came into uh, off the chat is, uh, based on the presentation today, Jesus was genius when he said, seek first the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom. By the way, uh, we're not hearing you, Zach. Right, right. Oh, here we go. Yeah. Um, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. He's going to add all these things onto us. And so, you know, could, could that be the, 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 the phrase that captures what's in the center of your heart here, Zach and David, in this talk? Yeah, I would, I, I'll, I'll speak first and then hand it off to David. There's every time I assign this book and I, I try to convince people that institutions are, can be good. They don't have to be always demonized. The, the, probably the number one question is, is the church an institution? That's a, it's, it's a good question, right? Um, and I don't want to like, I don't want to, it, it depends on what you define an institution as. And I think Jesus, that's right. Jesus was the genius of our, of our time. He's the son of God. And it's no surprise that he comes to, to mobilize and to build something that lasts beyond one life into the other. So I, I would affirm that statement that, that seeking first the kingdom is, you know, there's my favorite one of my favorite sermons um, is the greatest commandment by the greatest teacher and the greatest sermon. It's a, it's an amazing, an amazing thing to wrap your mind around. And to what David said, you, it's hard to do that alone, that if you're seeking first the kingdom and you find yourself alone in a forest, something's probably wrong. <laughs> I don't, yeah, sure. Often. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, so the question is, yeah, is the church an institution? I, I would, uh, maybe you can work on that a little bit uh, more. Uh, and then also, um, I would say that, so as I interact with whether it's, whether it's my Muslim friend or whether it's, um, my right wing friend who's, who's bought into that whole idea, um, or whether it's even my Catholic friend and, and, and you're wrestling with institutions and trying to help them to see the brokenness of them. Um, I think we can become very much of what we're against. Right. And how do we build what we're for? And I hear you're, you're trying to paint that. What, what can we be for? And, um, 
Yeah. And so, and, and of course, Zach, here at the end, you were talking about the importance of the church and all these things like, you know, the kingdom, the church has to be that, that front and center and everything has a false servant to that. Is, is that what you were trying to say there at the end as you were yeah. talking about like different institutions? Right. And at the end there, I'm, I was trying to a little bit say, don't choose an institution that isn't the church and com- and make decisions the sacrifice for the sake of the institution by abandoning the church. I mm-hmm. think that's that's one of the the fears I would have of this talk is like, hey, institutions are good, and so you sure. can imagine somebody giving their entire life to one absent and being um, pulled away from the church. So sure. that, that you, yeah, that's right there. Yeah. And which question should I take on the the church's institution question a little bit here? That would be great. Yeah, there, there's, there's a, there's a danger and then there's also some hope with viewing the church as an institution. The danger, and I'll just give a Boston example when you talk about Christianity and the church and let's just say Catholicism. What is the top of, what comes to the top of people's minds when they think about the church in Boston in the Catholic context? Anyone have any guesses? Talk about it all the time with people here in Boston. So you mean like current issues? Yeah. If, if I'm, I mean, if it, I, it would be the whole, the, the whole issue of, 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 um, uh, boy, what's the term that I want? Just all the, the brokenness that is there, the, the corruption, um, right. yeah, scandals. So maybe. it was, it was priests abusing little children mm-hmm. for years and years and years and years. And so when you interact with the church as an institution on that level, and people can't decouple what has happened over the course of time with the church in general, you have a lot of work to be saying, all right, I get, I get that many men and different people have taken and built institutions. I I would call the Catholic church a massive institution. When you look at it, it's actually the Catholic church owns the most, (laughs) the most land out of any institution in the entire world. They're a, a huge organization. And so that that's the danger of viewing the church as an institution is that it gets paired with some of the things that the church has done over the course of history. And, and, and that, that's, that's sort of the danger that the positive side of things are that if you as a group of people can, can plant a church and show people a plausibility. It's called a plausibility structure in academic literature. It's something physical that represents what Jesus was calling his disciples to. And you can network and show a brotherhood of love that as an institution draws people in just as it it sort of brings the Bible to life and to something that you can see, Mm -hmm. touch, hear, smell. And that's the, the necessary part of church's institution. So there's a danger of the history, but a positive with something tangible to be joining. And, you know, I've, you know, church's kingdom type language there. Mm-hmm. And David, I don't know if, I don't want to, I don't know if David wants to add or subtract anything. Mm-hmm. Sure. that and, and that's, that's really powerful. Um, you know, the, helping build or create that acts to church as, as it's, it's here, it, it's available here and, and being able to point to other places where that's happening. 
And I would say that's one of the visions of strength. The strength in advancing God's kingdom is is networking people and helping right. us realize that we're not the only crazy one or ones. You know, there's there's other brothers and sisters in the journey globally who are pursuing um, the kingdom of God uh, in in this fashion. Right. Uh, and trying to learn from each other and uh, inspire each other. And, you know, some of the, the teachings that you have there, as you showed at the beginning, um, just word debate, uh, voting debate, you know, some of those are powerful ways to to um, engage the world. So, um, David, I saw you didn't really have a lot to, to comment right here. Um, I would I would love to see some of your slides um, uh, discussed as well. I think I really appreciated what you shared there. Um, and then, of course, one of your last slides is is implications or the practical outworking of of this worldview. Um, really good. You talk about leveraging social capital, and that's something that, um, yeah, uh, I think that that uh, yeah, you you have a number of different things that help us really um, potentially make a difference uh, in the world. And I, I really appreciate that. Some good practical points. I'm going to open it up here. Um, does anybody um, have a question? That you would like to lob at these brothers. Let's go. Who's who's first? All right. I, John, I, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So Zach and David, I really appreciated that uh, uh, that talk this morning. This is amazing. I, I really loved every part of it. So uh, and and of course the focus on uh, you know changing the world and uh, uh, building building the kingdom. But the one one of the first slides that you showed Zach was about uh, uh and I forget exactly how it was but on the one side was um changing hearts and minds and how that's the wrong way to look at it and and that's that's one thing that I've often talked about uh in in not uh being politically active in the political uh, uh world is that we don't want to coerce people let's say we we don't want to coerce people into into christian ways of thinking christian uh, uh obedience to christian principles and so on but we want to change them from the inside out mm-hmm. and so I, I i wonder if you have more to like maybe elaborate on yeah i i don't think you would say we don't want to change hearts and minds i'm sure that's not what you're saying but could you uh, speak more about that right and it was actually on, I have an answer, but I'm going to throw that to David because I think it was on his slide there. Yeah, that's one thing is changing hearts and minds is not bad. And it's actually pretty integral to evangelism. You can't evangelize if you're not working to change hearts and minds. And so that is all a net good. What the thesis is, is that that by itself isn't how we're going to change the world. And so if the goal is more than just like evangelizing my neighbor, which is a good in and of itself. But if it's to actually be changing the world, there might be other better ways to go about it. Like a businessman, instead of spending all of his time just focused on his street, which he should be spending time on his street, he should be spending time with his neighbors, but spending time developing a business model that works as business as missions. And all of a sudden he has 20 people working with two unbelievers each and building these networks and institutions and that that's probably going to affect more change in the long run than just him working by himself. 
But all of this, as with everything in Christianity, is like only important in as much as it is serving people and serving individuals. And so the net goal is bringing people into the kingdom and reconciling um, men and women to God. But it's just how can we effectively do that? And thank you for that. And and I'll just add on that I think I think that there's actually a that there's something that you can start believing that your goal here is just to w- work from one individual to the next um, over the course of your life. I'm going to meet someone. I'm going to change their hearts and mind, and then they'll be changed, and I'll move on to the next person, and then on to the next person. But the I think one of the punchlines is your name Paul. I think yeah. Okay, is that you're if you don't if you change hearts and minds and don't give people something to join afterwards that the change might not last that there's got to be something that's bringing people together beyond that and that i think that's one of the the punchlines that that i would think there that it's not just about one heart to the next heart to the next heart to the next heart that there's a there's something growing and building that's you know that the kingdom and jesus describes the, the kingdom in many parables to, to that extent that it can it can blossom like a mustard seed, and I, I think that's that's one of the exciting parts about it. John D, I know you had a, a question here. Well, I really enjoyed the presentation. It's very stimulating, but my mind was racing with all kinds of questions that you probably won't have time to answer. There were two powerful movements in my lifetime. The one was the moral and social revolution of the '60s which did not focus on institution. In fact, institutions, in fact, it was anti-institutional, but they profoundly changed our society. And then you have the moral majority of the 80s, and they basically failed. In fact, I think it was Cal Thomas or uh, or uh, Chuck Colson had an editorial in Christianity Today after that was all over, and the next administration basically canceled most of what happened with a few strokes of the pen. Uh, They said we failed. Uh, because we did not focus on letting the church be the church, but they were they were very focused on institutions. They started a college. They uh, uh, influenced the political institutions. Uh, they elected Ronald Reagan. Uh, so why the question I'm asking is why did the social revolution that was anti-institution succeed so phenomenally, and the uh, movement in the 80s that focused on institutions basically failed to accomplish their goals. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think you're right. It's going to be hard for me to, going to be hard for me to, to answer that one. And basically, because my, my familiarity with it is, is lower, but I think we should talk afterwards on it. Dave, David, would you have anything to say to that one? I, th- I think the moral majority did like for its time. I'm, I'm guessing their goals were too high. Like they're going to make all of America Christian nation again, but they did influence like pretty profoundly how people think about relating to, um, to Christianity, to the church, to government. And there was a lot of, of influence there for sure. I would say a lot more. One of the points that Hunter makes is the Christian left um, was trying to do a lot of things at the same time. And they just weren't nearly as successful. Like people don't know the names. They don't even know the coalitions. Like we know the name moral majority, and that the Christian left was a lot less networked and influential. And so I can't speak much on the social revolution. I don't know as much about it, but I would say there was definitely influence there. I don't know whether the the goal was too high. I don't know what the deal was, but that's, those are some thoughts. 
And then I have one more thing to observe, and that is our tendencies as remnant uh, kingdom Christians, as I look out over the total scope of what's happening, tends to be anti-institutional. It mm-hmm. promotes in, uh, congregational church government, which I believe in, but uh, <clears throat> it seems then to be making a real effort to disconnect with the larger Anabaptist community and his, his historical uh, culture. Uh, I, I will say this. I talk to a cross-section of people every day on the telephone, and I have yet to have a negative response to the Mennonites or the Amish. Much as we see all of their failures, uh, the world apparently does not see that. And so if I describe the kingdom of God, it's not unusual for somebody to say, oh, the only people I know who live better are the Mennonites or the Amish. Or if I tell them I'm a Mennonite, they say, oh, the, you Mennonites and Amish are really good people. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm uh, putting out a call that we go out of our way to strengthen our connections with, with traditional Mennonite culture and practice and try to build relationships with, with a group of people that is basically respected by our society. A great way to do that is ma- it's to marry into it. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, lot, lots of, lots of good, good questions here. Um, for sure. Um, yeah. Thank you for, for the, for pointing that out. Um, and, and I think sometimes that, that, um, as I look at church planting that happens, especially as, as, as people go out into, um, foreign fields, is is an unrealistic kind of expectation of well they're very focused on change hearts and minds right but they're not they don't really understand church mm-hmm. and they kind of have this this um, pie in the sky view that this church is going to pop up out of that without being intentional and realizing that there has to be a structure uh, there has to be a way of going about this there has to be teaching and and leadership brought there uh, and so uh, I, I would say that um, this is a, this is a really a, a great uh, just a, a great starting spot, um, platform for us to to grapple with these things. Is there anybody, any other questions here? The morning is still young. We are. Yeah. Go ahead. Hey, I have a question. Um, thanks for sharing. Um, so I live in a small town and there's a lot of drug use and Seems like there's been a rise in violent crime recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, a man was shot on our street just a few nights ago. And that's got me thinking even more, like what, what can I do to make a change, um, in this, this town? Um, I've tended to think of making a change in, you know, just individuals. Um, but when I ask what your thoughts are on how to make a change, um, particularly with the drug use and crime. Yeah, the, I, I have, I have some, some thoughts about drug use and crime. Not that I'm the expert. I just have read stuff and have visited places. So there's a, there's a book called Influencer by a man named Joseph Grenny. Joseph Grenny is a Mormon, so just throwing it out there that shoot the meat spit out the bones. But they they were involved in starting a something called a restorative community 
um, a restorative community is kind of like a halfway house called the other side Academy and the other side Academy is in Salt Lake city, Utah. And it's basically, <laughs> I don't want to say this, but it's, it's a house where you group people together and you invite them on in and introduce extreme levels of discipline into their life. And, and you basically people who want change out of, the sort of drug use and they, they actually have a, they have an alternate uh, sentencing. So the other side Academy can actually approach the legal authorities and say, Hey, instead of being in prison, will you join, will you allow a, a prisoner to come and serve their sentence within our restorative community? And that, that model of, beginning to network a restorative community within your town, I think is probably the most promising model that I have seen. I know that is Patrick, is Patrick Matthew on the, on the call here today? I don't know if he was. He he was, I don't see him right now. Yeah. So I actually went and visited the other side Academy. Patrick was along on the trip a couple of years ago. We went to just figure out what was going on here. What, what, how can somebody literally in two years turn somebody into a, from a criminal into an outstanding member of society? And he, Patrick caught a vision for that and he's been starting a group called Harkin House. And I think there's potential for that, but it's, it's actually a lot of the principles behind what we talked about are here that rather than just go from individual to individual, that there is actually a structure behind it was some theory of change that you introduce into people's life. And I think researching a little bit about maybe that exists in your, in your neighborhood. We live in a neighborhood here where we started getting involved in the, the halfway house ministries that exist in our neighborhood. And we're, we've actually just said, Hey, can we, can we lead Bible studies with the men in those? And they've allowed us to. So we, we have a few brothers who, sort of exists in that sphere, but I would, I would highly recommend taking a look at, at the other side Academy is the one that I, I think is most impressive. Um, I think you'd be really inspired by it and might, might catch a vision there. Thank you. Thank you, Zach. So you, you got a big job there, Ethan. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, and I think too, um, finding ways, Ethan, you know, you, 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 you're painting a, a, a beautiful picture there, Zach, um, uh, a large initiative for sure. Um, it would need to see that. How could that be scaled smaller? I guess Harkin House would be a great, a great idea there, um, or an example, uh, smaller than, than the one there in, uh, in Utah. Um, right. And you don't have to start one at the beginning. You could just go join, join one that exists and exist. Yeah. So maybe, mm-hmm. maybe there's one in your, your community there that might be operating. Mm-hmm. Good. I think everybody should be aware there's a TED talk on uh, the other side Academy that will give you a, a pretty good picture of what's happening there. Sure. Glenn, could you drop that on here? Thank you. Um, all right. All right. Good. Good stuff. Um, I might just mention for Ethan, that he might want to try making some connections with the police department and with um, maybe the district attorneys and building some connections and networks with them and saying, you know, if you get somebody, we're here as a group that might be willing to uh, to 
to intervene and might be willing to um, mentor and walk beside some of these individuals or their families. Um, so there are some uh, avenues that you can get connected network locally there with like the uh, the police department or the the court system that might be able to give you some inroads and some authority and respect in the community. That's that's a great point, Earl. I, uh, I, I just was a, uh, I was just talking to a pastor who lives in my neighborhood for 30 years and he got acquainted with a fire with the, the firemen in the neighborhood. And they, every time that they, he said to them, if you encounter someone who you think would need some help, can you pass them to me? And he's been getting referrals from the, <laughs> from the firemen there on a continual basis for the last 25 years. So I think that's a great point, Earl. Very good. Okay. Um, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for that. And any, any other questions? We should wrap this up here in just several minutes, but um, lots of, lots of participation so far. All right. Well, thank you so much, Zach and, and David. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on here and putting yourselves out. Um, you know, you're, you're really working uh, with a big, big idea. Um, and so there's some vulnerability in kind of putting yourself out in that way. Um, but thank you. We, we need that. We need that engagement. Really appreciate that. Um, you know, I recently read a book um, called The Patient Permit of the Early Church. By Alan Kreider, uh, uh, fantastic book. I'm um, just looking at how did the early church change the world? And as you, you actually, um, this gentleman, this writer, of this book that you're referring to, I'm forgetting his name right now, but you know, referenced him, the anti-Nicene church. Um, and I just want to point out right here, um, uh, or just read a quote uh, from from that book. I think it ties into. Um, into this conversation, um, the Christians believed um, that evangelism was God's work, not theirs. Kreider makes the point that the early church writers, they never even wrote about evangelism. It was like, like an unintended consequences of actually faithfully following Jesus and building faithful communities. And that's what he's referring to here. So they did not engage, quote, so they did not engage in frantic action to save those who were not baptized. Instead, they trust, they entrust the outsiders to God. The church patiently also entrusted itself to God, who would bring people into the community of saints participating in truth by the arduous means of catechesis and baptism or, or teaching, discipling. Uh, and, and baptism. And what we see there is is a framework. We see a church that knows what it's believe, what it believes and is teaching and discipling and focusing really. Um, uh, it was an outward focus, but it was uh, but they had a healthy understanding of who the church is and and um, realizing that a faithful presence or a John 17 um, um proclamation was going to really draw the world uh, to itself. Um, so uh, rather than, you know, Zach or maybe David, I think you were kind of given the, the critique of, you know, this lone ranger soldier that that's just, that, that doesn't capture what the kingdom is, what the church is. And of course we see uh, brother John D has, has taught this many times on here, this idea of the we, 
Um, it's together that we really advance. And that has um, the entrappings uh, of, of, a, of, a, of a group, of, of an institution, uh, if you will, uh, moving forward. And so, um, so thank you for, for sharing um, these thoughts and challenging us in this way. Um, Zach, could you just close us with prayer here? Of course. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you for the men on the, the call this morning and any, anyone else that, that are listening here. I think about your son and what an amazing, as someone coined here, what amazing genius he was that he, he had all the answers to the problems here. And not only did he have the answers, he incarnated himself to show us and to teach us and to walk among us. I pray that we could do the same as he did, Lord, that we could, we could look at the world and pursue that same incarnational model and, and sort of living, living a life among really a lot of hardship that is pleasing and glorifying to you. I pray that you would inspire us. We need your help. We need your spirit and to, to guide us to take on the different, the different things that many of us will take on in different spheres. And we also th- lift up the world to you this morning, Father. There's a lot of pain and hurt. Please, uh, we pray for peace. We pray that you would teach us to know where to act and how to act if it is, uh, if that would be your wisdom. We love you and in your son's name we pray. Amen. 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 Okay. Thanks again for, for joining us. Uh, Lord willing, we'll meet back here two weeks from now with another theme, uh, on patriotic ambassadors. And that's going to be a young man, uh, by the name of Sean Miller. Um, he's a student here at Penn State. Um, does a lot of interacting with unbelievers and he's created this, um, this slideshow that he was willing to share with others on and how you, um, communicate, how you, uh, can show um, and talk about the kingdom of God versus earthly kingdoms. Uh, and so it's a, I've, I've gotten to sit with him and, and, and see that um, taught. And I said, brother, you need to share that broader than this. So he'll be on here uh, next, uh, or willing next or two weeks from now. So thank you for joining and God bless you all. Bye. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend.